Revelation 15. Continue our study through the book of Revelation. And we're going to be looking at the first four verses in this chapter this evening. And so I'm going to read those four verses for you. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the Lord that we are about to hear read to us, that he has sovereignly inspired to be written down and preserved, that his church might hear what the Spirit says to us. So may he give us ears to hear. Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's thank him for it. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we acknowledge that in all ages you have taught the hearts of your people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant to us this evening, we pray, the same Spirit, so that we might have a right understanding of your Word and your Son and your Gospel to the end that we would rejoice forever in the comfort that you have given us. We ask these things through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, and for his sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure we've all read stories about characters, or maybe you've watched a film or whatever, and you're watching these characters experience such suffering, such trials, such loss, that it almost causes you anxiety if you don't know the end of the story. Right? And so if you know the end of the story, it's like, all right, they're suffering a lot, they're enduring a lot here, but I can suffer through this myself as I continue to read it or watch them because I know what the outcome is. And brothers and sisters, in the Christian life, it's no different. In the Christian life, oftentimes when we face suffering or loss, because we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can start to wonder, As our own story unfolds under the sovereign power of God, 
as He has ordained for it to unfold, we wonder, will I endure? Will I make it? I don't know. Because I'm so weak. I'm so frail. My faith isn't what it ought to be. And so we begin to wonder, will these legs, (laughs) metaphorically, carry me all the way to the celestial city? And brothers and sisters, in chapter 15, these first four verses, we're given yet again an affirmation from the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle John. Yes, you will in fact make it. Every single one of my people will make it by my grace. And so that's why John keeps giving us this vision of the end of all things again. And the people of God being victorious, that we would be encouraged to persevere and endure of that coming victory. And so what we're going to look at tonight as we look at the first four verses of Revelation 15 is two headings of this victorious vision. And here are the two headings. First of all, we're going to look at the victorious saints in verses 1 and 2. We'll see that we have a vision here of the saints, all of God's people, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, in victory at the end of all things. And that's meant to encourage us. And second of all, we'll look at the reason why they're victorious. It's not because of anything within them. We'll look at their victorious Savior. They are victorious because their Savior is victorious. And we'll look at that in verses 3 and 4. Interestingly enough, not through symbols and visions like we normally receive in the book of Revelation, but by overhearing the song that those victorious saints sing about their victorious Savior. And my hope and prayer is, brothers and sisters, wherever you are in your Christian walk, that you will understand the Lord is going to keep you and cause you to persevere until the end. So let's look first then at the victorious saints in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now it's really important for us to note that in verse 1 at the beginning, when John says, then I saw another sign in heaven, he's indicating for us that he's wrapping up the previous cycle of visions that he's been taking us through. It was the fourth cycle. And by way of review, I'm going to walk you through the cycles that we've been through so far in the book of Revelation. And John is signaling for us, we're now entering into a new cycle. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look back at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. In Revelation 12, 1, John says, and a great sign appeared in heaven. He's using the same language that he used back there in chapter 12, verse 1. And now he's saying he sees another sign in heaven. That is great and amazing. And so he's letting us know that these four verses in Revelation 15, they're sort of like this. They serve this interlocking purpose, saying we're transitioning from the fourth cycle of the vision into the fifth cycle. And I think it's important that we review this because we can kind of get lost in the book of Revelation quite easily, can't we? And you'll remember that we've told you again and again, the book of Revelation unfolds in seven cycles. And each one of those cycles shows you the same time period. It's just showing you from different angles. It's showing you using 
different Old Testament imagery and symbolism. And so what's the time period? It's the time period from Christ's first coming until His second coming. Everything that's going to happen in history, again, through uh, symbols and, and images of what that's going to look like. So the first cycle is in chapters 1 through 3, where John receives this calling to receive this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you remember that Jesus writes these letters and has them sent to the churches. And what those letters we saw represent to us is various things that the church will experience throughout the time from Christ's first coming until his second coming. So that's the first cycle. Second cycle, again covering the same time period, is in chapters 4 through 7. And you remember that we were caught up with John into the heavenly temple where we saw the Father sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning in the heavenly temple over all things. And the Lamb standing as though it were slain. And what does the Lamb do? Then he opens up the scroll and the seven seals. And we see that with each seal that's broken, judgment is being brought upon the earth, upon the enemies of God. Yes, the people of God have to endure that as well, but it's not their judgment, it's their salvation. So that's the second cycle. In the third cycle, which spans chapters 8 through 11, we looked at John's vision of the seven trumpets that are blown. And we see that as each one of these seven trumpets is blown, there's judgment, again, brought upon God's people. Judgment that'll happen between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And then lastly, we looked at the fourth cycle that spans chapters 12 to 4. John's vision of the woman and her child pursued by the dragon and the beast and all of these horrific images and the judgment that Christ brings. And now, here, we're transitioning from that fourth cycle in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, into the fifth cycle that will cover chapters 15 and 16 with these seven plagues. And plagues, knowing how John uses Old Testament imagery, your mind should immediately go back to Exodus, because we're going to see a lot of Exodus imagery and Exodus language here. All of this judgment the Lord is going to bring upon his enemies. And yet, the way that John finishes the fourth cycle and then starts the fifth is by showing us the saints in glory in their victory. And so we'll look there at that in verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside a sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So what is John seeing? He's seeing the people of God throughout the ages standing next to this sea of glass, and there's fire in it. And already we see the Exodus language here. And we saw this earlier, by the way, in the book of Revelation, back in chapter 4 and verse 6, this language of a sea of glass. And you recall what's in chapter 4? We're in the throne room of God. We're in the heavenly temple. And you can go back and listen at some of the, the various layers of symbolism that are there, being baptism, the sea of glass representing that potentially, the church has said that, or the blood of Christ that cleanses the saints but if you go back, you'll also see that the main emphasis was on the fact that the sea of glass represents the world under God's judgment, the fallen world that we live in. It represents 
the fallen nature of the creation and the sufferings that we experience because it's under God's curse. And it's before God's throne in Revelation 4 because God has stilled it in his sovereignty. Now you say, well, why does the sea of glass represent evil? Well, we see that all throughout the Bible. I mean, you can go look at the prophets and see again and again Leviathan, this creature that God made that the Jews were terrified of. Where does he live? He lives in the sea. Jews were not very fond of the ocean. They didn't build settlements by, they didn't like to sail. They wanted to stay away from that. And so they thought the sea was this place of evil. And so they didn't like it. And so what we have here then is this imagery of the sea and the people of God standing next to it. And it's taking us back to Exodus. It's taking us back to remembering that the people of God were brought out of their slavery, their captivity to Egypt, and God brought them through the Red Sea, and then they stood on the other side of it in victory, while what happened to their enemies? The floodwaters of God's judgment came crashing down on them. The judgment that they rightly deserved as God's people, they didn't experience because of God's grace and mercy towards his covenant people, but his enemies did experience it. That judgment did come upon them. And so here they are, They're standing in victory. And we know that there's some imagery here of the Red Sea as well, because if you were to see a crystal that looked like it was on fire, because there's this crystal sea mixed with fire, what color is fire? It's it's red. And so again, we have this, this imagery. Here is the people of God, having gone through all the tribulations, life in this fallen world, living faithfully unto Christ, and they stand now in victory. And how do we know they're in victory? Because they've conquered, again, look at verse 2, they've conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, and now they're standing beside the sea of glass. And so what is being told or what's being represented to us here about the saints? It's that no matter what sufferings, no matter what trials, no matter what temptations, no matter what losses were thrown at them. They never turned away from walking in covenant faithfulness to the Lord. Yes, they may have sinned, but they repented of that sin. And they didn't persist. And they didn't walk in accord with the world and the flesh and the devil, the beast, the enemies of God. Instead, they walked in covenant faithfulness with God, looking in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because how's the only way that we can conquer the beast? We already know this from Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. The way that the saints conquer is by the blood of the Lamb. And so what we're being shown here is that the people of God have conquered their enemies. They've endured this time of tribulation that we keep seeing again and again in the church age between Christ's first and second coming. And they're standing now victoriously, and they stand victoriously because God has graciously kept them. But that's not the only thing that we see here. We also see that God not only graciously keeps them and causes them to endure and persevere, but God also then graciously rewards them for doing so. You notice there in verse 2, what do they have in their hands? Look at the very end there. They're standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Who do these harps belong to? 
They belong to God. And yet what has God done? He's given them to them. And so what we see then is God not only graciously keeps them, but then graciously rewards them for enduring and persevering until the very end. So we see, as always, in God's dealings with us, it's just grace upon grace, isn't it? Grace upon grace. And so, brothers and sisters, as we look at this, how can we understand our own lives? What application might we draw from this? Well, the application that we draw from this is that we're guaranteed two things in this life. First of all, we're guaranteed that we're going to suffer. We are going to suffer for Jesus' sake, as his followers. He promises us that again and again, doesn't he? If they persecuted me, I'm the master. The servant's not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. And so it's a guarantee that we will suffer for Christ's sake. The second thing, though, we don't like that part of the promise, do we? The second part of the promise, though, is that we will endure. By God's grace, we will be kept. And so even as you see that suffering coming your way, and you experience it, and you wonder, Lord, this is too much. I'm not going to be able to make it. You can hear the Lord's promise to you. He who began, Philippians 1 verse 6, a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Because you understand, brothers and sisters, we're not just looking at a vision of the saints here. We're looking at a vision of ourselves as a part of that company, as a part of God's people, the church. And so we can know that one day we will enter into the joy of our master. Because through him who loves us, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. And we need to know that in this life as we suffer and as we struggle against doubts and our own weaknesses. And yet notice that as the saints enjoy this, now that they have these harps in their hands and they're ready to sing... They're not singing about their ability to triumph, are they? They don't sing about themselves at all. Instead, what we see them singing about, and this is the second point in verses 3 and 4, is we see them singing about their victorious Savior. They're singing about Him. And so let's look at verse 3 then, first, as we look at how they rejoice in their victorious Savior. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. The song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Now what's fascinating here is that John is saying that they open their mouths and they're singing what appears to be two songs when he labels it, right? He says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant or slave of God, and the song of the Lamb. And yet, when you actually look at the song, how many songs are there? There's one song, isn't there? And so, what is John talking about here? Well, he's referencing the song of Moses in Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. Which, again, you remember, after God delivers the Israelites from the Egyptians, they walk through the Red Sea as if on dry ground, and then Pharaoh says, let's go get them. (laughs) And then he tries to do the same, and they're swallowed up, they're destroyed. 
in the floodwaters of God's judgment. And then they stand on the side of the Red Sea and they sing. Aaron does, Miriam does, Moses does. The horse and the rider, he is tossed. The victory is the Lord's. And what John is saying here is that the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are one. And so do you, do you get what he's saying here? He's saying the same victories that the Lamb has brought about here in Revelation, he's the author also of the deliverance that Israel experienced during the time of the Exodus. The Lamb has always been rescuing his people. The Son of God has always been delivering his people. And so there's no division. There aren't two songs. Do you see the cohesion of the covenants? John's not making some huge division here. He's saying, how have the people of God been delivered? It's always been through the person and work of the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so we see the unity of the covenants here. And they're able to sing this song. Why? Because of Jesus' victory. Because you see, Moses' exodus that God brought about through Moses, that was all pointing us towards, forwards to the, the greater exodus, that one who was greater than Moses, who was but a servant in the house, Jesus is the owner of the house, isn't he? <laughs> one could say he is the house itself. And so he has a greater glory. And he says in Luke 9.31 to Moses and Elijah in his transfiguration that he is going to bring about a greater exodus. He has an exodus to undergo. And so why are the Israelites even spared then? And why are we spared today? Because the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins was spent on Jesus on the cross. And his life of perfect righteousness is counted as our own. And then he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand and he intercedes for us even now. And so we have access to God like we never have. And so this is the greater exodus that's been brought about that the people of God are singing in joy over. And because Jesus has conquered, what we see is that we will conquer as well. You remember in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, that the Lamb which represents the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is standing as one who is slain. He's standing in victory before the Father. And now, what are the saints doing here at the end of all things? They're standing as well, aren't they? And so what's being communicated to us symbolically here is that because the Lamb stands, we will stand as well. Because He stood in our place. We now stand in Him, and we will be able to stand before the judgment of God, having been preserved and endured through all that this world has to throw at us. We did not fall, we stood. And so the fascinating thing, though, again, is that what are the saints singing about? They're not singing about themselves. They're not singing as if they brought about this victory. They're singing about the Lamb their Savior. And what are they singing about Him? What are they saying? They're saying, first of all, great and amazing, verse 3, are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. So what's being shown to us? The Christ is Lord God the Almighty. He is God. And so Christ is being praised as such, as the divine person. 
And what are these great and amazing deeds that Christ has done? Well, there's three primarily that we could think of. Creation, and then providence, that he upholds the creation. And then thirdly, redemption. And you say, okay, well, where do you get those from? You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But Paul lays all three of those out for us as he's extolling the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1. And so let me just read these verses to you. First of all, in creation, we hear this mentioned in Colossians 1 verse 16. We read, For by him, that is the Son, the second person in the Trinity, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. As the divine word of God, all things exist because of him. And so they're praising him. Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. And they're also praising him for his work of providence. Listen to what Paul says again in Colossians 1 verse 17. And he, that is the Son, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only does the Son, as the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, are all things created, but all things that then are given existence are continually given existence, so long as they have it, by the Son, the Word of God. And so we're to praise Him for that. And then thirdly, finally, they're praising Him for His work of redemption. And listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul says, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so for all eternity, what are the saints doing? Rejoicing in the great and marvelous deeds of the Lamb, the Lord God, the Almighty, the second person of the Trinity. And the saints go on to praise him, Because all these works that he does, he does in accord with his character. His works reflect his character. So look there at the tail end of verse 3. They sing, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Jesus is the King and ruler of all. No one can say, you're not my King. Because all authority in heaven and on earth, all judgment has been given to the Son. He's the King of all of the nations, and all of his ways reflect his justice and his truth, because as God, he is justice and truth itself. But they don't stop their song there. Look what they continue to sing in verse 4. They start with a rhetorical question. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so where do they start? They start by saying, Lord, who's not going to fear you? In light of what you've done, in light of who you are, in light of your power and your sovereignty, who is going to resist this? Who will not glorify your name? 
And what are they getting at? Of course, they're getting at the reality that when Christ comes back the second time, what's going to happen? There's not going to be resistance in glorifying God like there is now. What's going to happen is Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. That when Christ returns, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day it will be so clear <laughs> who He is, because His righteous acts will have been revealed that even if you are not bowing in worship at the sheer display of His power and His might and His authority, every knee will bow. It will be beyond dispute and every tongue confess. And so we praise Him because He will bring the nations to its knees. Every single person. No one will be exempt. And why will this happen? Well, again, look at verse 4. Look at the middle there. I'll start at the beginning of verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You alone are holy. And that will be fully on display at the end of all things. And so all the nations will come. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Because you alone are God. Brothers and sisters, behold what we will be singing for all eternity. And notice again, there's no mention of their strength. There's no mention of, man, isn't this incredible? What we've done. Look at what we've done. We've endured. We've persevered. No, they're caught up in wonder, awe, and praise of who their victorious Savior is. And the fact that He has kept And so I don't know if you reflect on this, but brothers and sisters, this is what we will do for all eternity. And I hope that that delights your soul to know. Because what is a lot of our days caught up in? Self, right? Like a moth is drawn to the flame, aren't we sinfully drawn to self? We just turn in on ourselves, focus on how am I feeling? How am I doing? Am I satisfied? What do I think about this? Me, 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 I, I, I. And don't we actually hate that about ourselves insofar as it still exists within us, even as Christians, in this battle between the flesh and the Spirit? And yet on this great day and for all eternity, we will do nothing but praise and worship God for His marvelous, wonderful, mighty acts of creation and providence and redemption. I love what William Barclay has to say about this in his little commentary on Revelation. He says, heaven, at least in part, is heaven because in it, at last, all self, all self-importance are lost in the presence of the greatness and the glory of God. And so, brothers and sisters, as we reflect on this and we see this glorious vision yet again, notice how John keeps showing it to us. It's as if he knows how slow we are to believe. Man, is it really going to be like that? I'm really going to make it? He shows us again and again, yes, you are. By God's grace, you will endure, you will persevere. Don't think that's going to be an easy path. 
It'll be very hard. Have we not seen that from the book of Revelation? Many of you know that just from your own Christian walk. It's one in which we fight against temptation. We don't give in. That's hard. It's one in which we, when given the option to either bail and be spared suffering, and yet that equals unfaithfulness, or the faithful path is suffering, we're commanded by God to choose the path of suffering and faithfulness. But He will strengthen us. And He will keep us. And so really, it's not just John showing us this. Don't you see what a gracious Savior we have? How compassionate, how sympathetic. He knows how weak we are. So He says, don't despair. I'm going to keep you to the end. You're going to make it. And so that's why as the stories of our lives unfold, we need to remind ourselves and remind one another, we know the ending of the story. We know that we make it, so press on. Persevere. Endure. And let's enjoy every step of the way, every little foretaste that we get of this kind of worship of God. Together, individually, as families, rejoicing knowing that this is just practice for all eternity, when we'll do that perfectly with all the saints who've gone before us for all eternity, worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kindness that you show us in giving your Son. He has undergone a greater exodus and brought us through the floodwaters of your wrath by dying on the cross in our place. And we know that we will endure whatever suffering you've ordained for us until that great day when, with all the saints, we stand on the other side of the Red Sea in victory and we sing your praises forevermore. May this be a little foretaste of that for us now as we turn to prayer. And may we understand that that crystal sea, this fallen world, that is filled with wickedness and evil, is under your sovereign control. And so may we beseech you in prayer and ask that you would sovereignly rule for our good and for your glory as we know that you will. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.